Hello folks, thank you for tuning in to another installment of the Federalist Files. On today's show, I'm going to be going over Federalist number 77. It is titled, The Appointing Power Continued and Other Powers of the Executive Considered. It's written by Alexander Hamilton, uh, April 2nd, 1788. Topics include, it's a wrap-up of the executive powers, a defensive appointment process of officials. So once again, he's going to defend this power of appointment from another objection from his dissenters. This one's really not going to be that long. He kind of just expounds upon the last one. He elucidates a little bit. So he opens the paper with the cooperation of the Senate as applicable in displacements of public officers as well as uh, appointments. So he opines, and I quote, where a man in any station had given satisfactory evidence of his fitness for it, a new president would be restrained from attempting a change in favor of a person more agreeable to him by the apprehension that a discountenance of the Senate might frustrate the attempt and bring some degree of discredit upon himself, end quote. So Hamilton, he's arguing that uh, every time there is a transfer of power, this provision will provide stability and will mitigate inconsistency. Uh, this is just, once again, this is a restraint on the presidential power of nominating these public officials, Supreme Court justices. That's the reason why they, they hold some of this power in the Senate, that they have to also um, agree with the nomination to appoint. They have to vote a majority. Um, so Hamilton next, he continues by objecting to claims that this provision of nominations and appointments gives both the legislature too much power over the executive and the executive too much power over the legislature. So you're going to find in in these um, in this paper specifically that this is a pretty fallacious argument and, and really, uh, you know, his dissenters are just picking at scraps at this point because they've been so disproven on everything else. So Hamilton, he characterizes the latter claim and refutes. He states, and I quote, It amounts to this. The president would have an improper influence over the Senate because the Senate would have the power of restraining him. This is an absurdity in terms. It cannot admit of a doubt that the entire power of appointment would enable him much more effectually to establish a dangerous empire over that body than a mere power of nomination subject to their control, end quote. So yeah, pretty much saying. And the Senate also isn't going to have power over the president. Because if they're shooting down good nominations, then that's going to fall. That's not going to fall on deaf ears. People are going to see that as well. Um, by the Senate having influence or, or some sort of restraint over the presidential power, that doesn't give the president more power over the Senate. These are these are two completely separate bodies, and whether or not the president is elected has really nothing. This the Senate can't do anything about the president being elected. Um, and it's the same thing. The only thing that they could attempt to do is uh, impeachment, which could be a political process. I think you'd be more worried, honestly, about impeachment than you would be worried about this being too much of an influence over the executive. And impeachment, the people would hold uh, the senators in the House of Representatives, those members of the Congress, the people would hold them accountable if they decided to go forward with an impeachment on somebody that didn't deserve to be impeached. That's really uh, the philosophy behind that as well. That's the point of the self-government, self-representation, as they call it. So he next contends against the former argument by claiming this power vested in the legislature to appoint is only meant as a restraint on the president. He claims, and I quote, 
and it has been shown that the restraint would be salutary at the same time that it would not be such as to destroy a single advantage to be looked for from the uncontrolled agency of the ma that magistrate. The right of nomination would produce all the good of that of appointment and would in a great measure avoid its evils, end quote. So he's saying, uh, let's say Great Britain at the time, they had their, they had their king. He had unlimited power of appointment. He's saying the right of nomination for the president produces all of the good parts of that system with all of the evils taken out of it because it's not a complete and absolute power of appointment. It's a power of nomination. And then the appointment power would come to confirm later in the Senate by a majority vote. So it's all the good points of it without uh, having all the bad bad points as well because it decentralizes the power. It gives some to the Senate, gives some to the president. So next he states... Uh, he next, uh, let's see, next Hamilton describes the nomination and appointment system in the state of New York as wholly incompetent. In said system, the governor has the power to nominate and, se and separate, and a separate council of appointment in which he is involved confirms the nomination. So I'm going to go through a little bit what was going on in New York at this time, just because I think it serves as a very good example of what a corrupt, screwed up system is. So what you had is you had the governor... Uh, he nominated, kind of like this presidential power was, but then there was a separate council of appointment, and the council had nothing to do with a legislative body. Um, from what I understand, there was, it was like a separate body that I think was appointed. I'm not sure if, it, I don't think it was appointed by the executive, but I may be incorrect. I'm going to read his quote, and then I'll kind of explain it afterwards, because I think that'll give us some more insight. He states, and I quote, in that plan, the power of nomination is unequivocally vested in the executive, and as there would be a necessity for submitting each nomination to the judgment of an entire branch of the legislature, the circumstances attending an appointment from the mode of conducting it would naturally become matters of notoriety, and the public would be at, a, at no loss to determine what part had been performed by the different actors. The blame of a bad nomination would fall upon the president singly and absolutely the censor of rejecting a good one would lie entirely at the door of the senate aggravated by the consideration of their having counteracted uh, the good intentions of the executive and he's just talking about yeah okay so i'm actually going to go on a little i have like two more quotes then i'm going to explain or this this next quote then i'm going to explain the entire system of new york i forgot that i put this in here yeah so he's talking about just he says, he mentions, which is weird, he mentions New York, and then he actually doesn't explain them until like two paragraphs later. And he says, having a system where it's set up like this, it holds the president accountable uh, because a bad nomination would be um, of his fault. And if it was a good nomination, it would then hold the Senate accountable if they shut it down. So Hamilton, he characterizes next, and I quote, such a council would also be more liable to executive influence than the Senate because they would be fewer in number and would act less immediately under the public inspection. So this is now when he's going to kind of give the actual example of New York because in New York at that time it was a council of appointments, they called it, and it consisted of three to five people and the governor was always one of them. And I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure, I'm not 100% sure, that this council of appointments, I think, was a couple members from, like, their legislative body. 
but everything was so privatized that it was weird. There was no um, transparency with these these politicians in New York, and that's why it was such a corruptible system. And the president also, or the, or the governor rather, had a say in that separate council. He was involved in that council. He had a vote as well. So he goes on to explain this. He states, and I quote, The council of appointment consists of from three to five persons, of whom the governor is always one of them. This small body, shut up in a private apartment, impenetrable to the public eye, proceed to the execution of the trust committed to them. It is known that the governor claims the right of nomination upon the strength of some ambiguous expressions to in the Constitution, but it is not known to what extent or in what manner he exercises it, nor upon what occasions he is contradicted or opposed, end quote. So, yeah, they're saying, he's saying... The people, no one knows when he's contradicted, he's opposed. No one no one knows how the system goes because it's completely privatized. We don't know who approves of, of the next nomination uh, by the governor. We would assume that the governor, considering the governor has one vote, he probably would approve of it in the council. Then we don't know who approves and who disapproves of these nominations, thus separating the accountability from those, from that council, because no one knows who's to blame when it, ends up being a bad public official. So he goes on to explain more. He states, and I quote, the censure of a bad appointment on account of the uncertainty of its author and for want of a determinate object was neither poignancy nor duration. And while an unbounded field of cabal for cabal and intrigue lies open, all idea of responsibility is lost. The most that the public can know is that the governor claims the right of nomination, that two out of the inconsiderable number of four men can too often be managed without much difficulty, that if some of the members of a particular council should happen to be of an uncomplying character, it is frequently not impossible to get rid of their opposition by regulating the times of meeting in such a manner as to render their attendance inconvenient, and that from whatever cause it may proceed, a great number of very improper appointments are from time to time made. End quote. So there's a lot of things here. So you can have the president actually, or I keep saying the president, I, you can have the governor can manipulate the times of the meeting in order to have less people show up, less attendance, more voting in his favor for his nomination. And then additionally is it's easier to coerce a very smaller group of men rather than a larger group of men. The Senate at this time when the Constitution was proposed was to be 26 men. Um, if it was only nine states, still it was to be 18 men. So it was a much larger group of people that were uh, you know, less, they had a less of a chance to get manipulated by the governor or, or the president, the executive magistrate. Uh, next, he states, and I quote, Whether a governor of this state avails himself of the ascendant, he must necessarily have in this delicate and important part of the administration to prefer to offices men who are best qualified for them, or whether he prostitutes that advantage to the advancement of persons whose chief merit is their implicit devotion to his will and to the support of a despicable and dangerous system of personal influence, are questions which, unfortunately for the community, can only be the subjects of speculation and conjecture. End quote. So I was saying, yeah, we, we have no, this is speculation, this is conjecture. We have no idea if these people that are being nominated and appointed in New York 
are there because of their actual merit or if they're there because the chief magistrate, the governor, liked them because they were so devoted to his will. They were, uh, they had loyalty to him and whatever it was, whatever corruption he wanted to do. It didn't matter. They stuck by him. They had loyalty to him rather than the people themselves or their constitution. Uh, that's, that's another thing. When we, when, when public officials get sworn in, they, they don't swear into their loyalty to the president. They don't swear in their loyalty, uh, you know, to some king, they swear their loyalty to the people and the constitution. It's not a, it's not like in Great Britain. Uh, one of the things, the very first thing, I mean, I don't know if it's still like this, but they would swear into the crown. They would promise the crown that they were going to protect the crown at all costs. And then they would kind of talk about their governing document in the background afterwards and the people themselves. But they, the most important thing was that their loyalty was to the royals really more than anything. In America, it wasn't. It's not like that. America, you swear in. You swear into the Constitution and the people. You don't swear into any person because no person is above any others. Uh, we are all endowed by our Creator with inalienable rights. We're all created equally. That's the point of uh, you know we swear into this document rather than a person. And God, obviously, that's why you put your hand on the Bible or you know whatever your document is, whatever your uh, religious document is. So Hamilton, he repeats his reasoning in relation to why the House of Representatives aren't included in the power of appointment. He states, and I quote, A body so fluctuating and at the same time so numerous can never be deemed proper for the exercise of that power. Now, Hamilton, he infers instability being the main flaw for the House of Representatives. You're going to have these... Uh, these biennial elections, every two years you're having elections, so it's going to be a very unstable body. You're also going to have younger people because the requirement is only 25 years old. So they're going to be much less, uh, you know, informed on all of the issues, all of the, the federal governance type stuff. The Senate's going to have a form of stability, six-year terms, making it much more stable. The people are older, they're going to be 35 years or older, uh, they're going to be wiser than the people in the House of Representatives. That's the reasoning for deeming that power in the Senate. And the House of Representatives was actually going to be a larger body, too, as well. Fluctuating, you know, and very numerous. Uh, Hamilton, he infers instability being the main flaw of the ha House of Representatives and suggests that in a half century, the House of Representatives will consist of three to four hundred persons, which he's absolutely right about this. Now, we have... At this time, I don't, I don't know if it was half a century later they had that much, but now currently we have 435. So he's right. Imagine laying that power in the hands of the House of Representatives. If you ask me to name all of the House of Representatives, no one would be able to really do it. If you ask me to name like a, a lot of senators, I could probably do a pretty decent job of that. Thus, there's more accountability for the senators because they're much more... Uh, you know, mainstream names, whereas the House of Reps, if you live in a specific district, which most Americans, I guarantee you, most Americans that are involved in politics or think they're they're informed in politics probably don't even know what their district representative is. Uh, ours is Bonnie, Bonnie Watson Coleman. Uh, she's a Democrat, but uh, in, in my district that I live in. But uh, yeah, so Hamilton, he explains the final remaining powers of the executive in order to summarize the remaining uh, powers conferred to the executive. So here's what he goes on. He's actually going to state all the powers in kind of like in a summation in a way, but also mentioning, mentioning some other powers. 
involved. I mean, this isn't limited to. This is just some other additional powers that he didn't really go deep into depth with because he didn't feel any need to do so because there really wasn't much. Uh, there wasn't much of a fight on these on these issues. So he states, and I quote: "In giving information to Congress, and the, these are the powers conferred upon the executive, in giving information to Congress of the State of the Union, in recommending to their consideration such measures as he shall judge expedient in convening them." or either branch upon extraordinary occasions in adjourning them when they cannot themselves agree upon the time of adjournment, in receiving ambassadors and other public ministers, in faithfully executing the laws, and in commissioning all the officers of the United States. So those are additional powers that are in the um, that are given to the executive in the Constitution. If you if they can if if the Congress can't agree in a time of meeting the president will lay it out. I don't know if that really has happened much recently. I think usually they can agree on it because all the swamp members, they mostly, for the most part, they live in D.C., so there's really no issue there. Uh, and then the other one is he can uh, convene. He can br- pretty much bring the legislative body together in exigency circumstances and extraordinary occasions, as they say here, which I thought was very uh, interesting as well. He's kind of the unified, if, if you want to try to best understand the president he's like the unified military head i guess you would call it of the uh the government and he he enforces and facilitates the enforcement of the laws that are laid out so hamilton he's furnished uh now that he has furnished sufficient answers to all the contentions relating to the powers of the executive he states and i quote we have now completed a survey of the structure of and powers of the executive department, which I have endeavored to show combines as far as Republican principles will admit all the requisites to energy. Hamilton, he concludes that he has also provided the requisites of safety from usurpations by the executive. He cites a due dependence on the people, a due responsibility, a four-year term, uh, impeachment and forfeiture of life and estate by subsequent prosecution after impeachment as all provisions in favor of the public security. Uh, now I'll show, now I'm going to state where he actually he actually mentions this. He states and I quote. Let's see if this is it. Yes, okay. So he states and I quote. The answer to this question has been anticipated in the investigation of its other characteristics, and is satisfactorily deducible from these circumstances. From the election of the president once in four years by persons immediately chosen by the people for that purpose, and from his being at all times liable to impeachment, trial, dismission dismission from office, uh, incapacity to serve in any other to forfeit and to forfeiture of life and estate by subsequent prosecution in the common course of law. But these precautions, great as they are, are not the only ones which the plan of the convention has provided in favor of the public security. In the only instances in which the abuse of the executive authority was materially to be feared, the chief magistrate of the United States would, by that plan, be subjected to the control of a branch of the legislative body. End quote. So yeah, he's saying, uh, you know, the president can kick out of office by the legislative branch, uh, by impeachment, go through trial, criminal trials if it's a criminal case, uh, 
and he'll never be able to serve ever again because of that forfeiture of life and estate could could subsequently happen through prosecution. So there's a lot of securities against the president, and that was what was feared at the time because you had Great Britain, you had the king over there ruling with an iron fist. So everybody was oh, and, and historically speaking, in Europe in general, a lot of the times there was a uh, some sort of hereditary monarch, or there was a monarch in general, or aristocracy, oligarchy. There's this power structure where a connected few or a connected one pretty much rained down power on the people. So they just wanted to uh, respect that and, and being one governing body, one person to represent the entire executive branch. The founders were a little bit, what's the word, prudent in their way in which they constructed the Constitution for that reason. Uh, and then at the very end, this is what he mentions, the last quote, he says, and this is after he just stated that entire paragraph. He says, and I quote, What more could be desired by an enlightened and reasonable people? End quote. So pretty much, you know, this this plan is locked. This this plan is awesome. What more could be, you know, uh, desired by, by the people of this country? It's a great plan. I do agree. The Constitution is the greatest governing document of all time. It's I'm not going to say it's perfect because man is inherently flawed. But, I mean, it, it's as close to as perfect as you can as you can ever, as you can ever construct a governing document, uh, historically there's just never been one like it. Federalism, in a general sense, I think there's only been one or two other countries, or, or historically, I don't even know if you want to call them countries, historically lands that uh, that have ever tried federalism to this extent, and uh, America is the only one that's really succeeded at having having a country that is you know been a free land by the Constitution as stated. Um, yeah, but that'll conclude this one. I greatly appreciate everyone tuning in as always. Please like, share, subscribe. Uh, make sure you check out the weekend special. Make sure you check out the current event podcasts. Uh, yeah, just keep hammering them through. We're almost done. We're going to start up. Federalist number 79 is going to be about, or I'm sorry, 78, the next one. We're going to go on to the Judiciary Department. I think we're going to do that for until 83 i'm pretty sure and then 84 and 85 are just kind of miscellaneous ideas and then that will conclude the uh the federalist papers and then after that i'm trying to figure out exactly what i'm doing because i'm kind of tuck stuck in a uh stuck in a predicament with work i'm trying to find a new job so i'm going to be maybe just doing those two podcasts a week for a while while i kind of study and try to learn some other skills to find a new occupation and uh yeah so I think that's what I'll do going forward. I'm not 100% sure. Still not exactly sure what I'm going to do about vacation. It's going to be in a couple weeks uh, with the podcast. I know I'm definitely going to do the current events. I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to do Federalist Papers. I will let everybody know. I'll keep everybody posted on that. And that will be it. I greatly appreciate you all for tuning in, and I will see you all next time. It's true.